For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. For new people, I'm Taigen Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragons Zen Gate, and I'm very happy to have with us as our guest speaker this morning, Zenju Earthland Manual. Um, hello, Zenju. Um, so uh, Zenju and I are both, um, we are late related, uh, uh, Dharma related in as much as uh, Zenju is a Dharma heir of Blanche Hartman, Zen K. Blanche Hartman, who was my um, Shuso teacher. I was actually uh, Blanche's first Shuso teacher at Tassajara in 1990. And uh, Zenji told me that she was Blanche's last Shuso teacher. So we're bookends on that. Um, Zenju is, um, uh, in, in addition to being a Dharma teacher, has written a number of books, um, including The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender, also, the deepest piece, Contemplations from a Season of Stillness. Her new book is called The Shamanic Bones of Zen, and I think it's very important. Um, at its foundations, Zen Buddhism is an earth religion uh, and or an earth, spirit, earth spirituality and has a shamanic base. Uh, we uh, are not as aware of that in American Zen as we might be. And so I think Zenju's book will be very helpful in terms of um, waking up American Zen. So Zenju, thank you very much for being here. Uh, uh, take it away. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ancient Dragon, Dharma Gate, <laughs> um, and Tigan, uh, Dan Layton. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I've been on a sabbatical, so this is, feels like, oh my gosh, I'm talking again. So <laughs> I've been in a more quiet place. So this is very great. To, at least it's um, folks who understand the world in which I live. <laughs> so um, I chose the topic engaging whatever arises. Engaging whatever arises. And um, I chose that topic because you can talk about many things, many topics within it. Um, I want to make sure that I um, do some talking and then I want to uh, engage you in conversation and Q&A. Um, um, I'm not always out talking and, or on Zoom, so this is uh, your time. <laughs> to engage me. Uh, it's not always easy to access me and um, talk with me. So um, engaging whatever arises. And um, I thought that topic was interesting and how it, it just came up inside of me as um, kind of the catch-all action of our lives that 
we are always engaging, hopefully, whatever arises, even if our engagement is to hide, um, to, um, you know, stick our heads in the sand, that's still in some kind of engagement, <laughs> even the avoidance is an engagement. So I'm wondering, even right now, um, how you are engaging the rising of Zinju Earth Emmanuel's face and voice. You know, are you engaging it? You know, what's happening? What's not happening? All the many things going on in your mind about what could happen, what you hope will happen. So let's see, there's 25 people here. So there's like actually right now 25 personal um, consciousness working around a moment of engagement right here with me. So I'm wondering just right now what it feels like as you arise in this moment and at this time. And even if that engagement is just with yourself, what is arising? How is it arising? Did it arise and then suddenly you begin to um, add on a few things, you know. Um, we're now in a Dharma talk. Okay, now it means I'm going to get something. <laughs> oh, we're now in a Dharma talk. I'm going to get something special because I've never talked to Zinja. <laughs> I'm in a Dharma talk and I really don't like them too much, but I'm here anyway. I like Zazen better. It's quiet. I'm not sure if what will arise here is what I want to engage. But I will brace myself. I will control every moment of the engagement that is arising at this time. I don't know why I'm controlling every moment, but I will control it. And think about it later. Oh, shucks, I knew that was going to happen. Oh, shucks, I knew that wasn't going to happen. What the hell is she going to say? And what the hell did she say? How many um, have heard over 100 Dharma talks? Raise your hand. Yeah. 
how many have done over 50 Dharma talks. <laughs> yeah. What is that engagement and what are we doing? And what arises during these moments in which we are trying to put words to something that has no words at all? So I'm just throwing these questions out. I don't have answers. I'm just helping us be right here in this moment, engaging um, whatever arises. So the reason why I thought this is an important topic is because it does uh, force us to reflect on how our mind works and how our mind gets involved in what we are engaging and how we engage our lives in everything that happens, everything that happens. So for instance, um, Tigan mentioned um, several books and their titles, you know, that I wrote. So a lot of people have come to me and, um, especially with the way of tenderness. And um, they're ready to engage what arised around them just in the title of the book. Oh, she, she's going to talk about race. She's going to talk about sexuality or gender or these things that are listed on her book. Now she's talking shamanic bones. Oh my gosh, where is she going? <laughs> What's she doing? But when one sits and in, 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 uh, without the mind involved, I wonder what you might see instead of what your mind is used to seeing or your mind is um, trying to create a situation, a box, in which you can relate to the title or relate to people or relate to the experience or relate to yourself. So how does the way of tenderness to many people, that book serves them around race, but the book is, and when I wrote it, is around awakening. The book was around awakening through a particular gateway, my gateway that I used present, not the gateway, I think is for everyone. Definitely not for everyone. So engaging what arises and how we engage it um, not only helps us to see our own mind and who we are, but it also helps us to um, walk in this life without wanting things to be the way we need them to be. And that's the, that's the lesson of oppression for me. It can't be the way I want it to be every moment. Or if you're ill, it can't be the way you want it to be all the time. That doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. We're not talking about that and taking action. 
but how do we engage whatever arises in our lives? And when I um, learned through my practice, through Zen practice, to just walk with everything that comes, because that's exactly what's happening in the monastery, right? You're in a community, you don't know the people, you know, first thing you get in, it's like, oh, no, I really didn't mean to live with 50 people, you know, that I don't know, you know, and I don't know where they came from, but okay, <laughs> but I'll just keep my head down and stay in the Zendo. Or, you know, you're start to engage, you know, you start, you, you can't help but engage, even if you're silent, you can't help but engage your body, mind and spirit. And so you're engaging whatever arises until your mind decides you're not going to do it, or are you going to do it some more, one or the other? Or are you going to have, you might, some people may be there in the middle, <laughs> they might halfway make it through. <laughs> Well, I'll just do kind of a mediocre sitting so I could get through this. <laughs> I've already spent my money and I've already told people I'm at the monastery for three months. So <laughs> let me just hang out. So, but there's some important things that I want to point out around um, engaging whatever arises and the ways in which I have applied the teachings to that so that whatever comes up in my life, Uh, Because I wanted to live a full life. Uh, Excuse me, I'm going to have to close the door. Um, Our maintenance guy has decided to mow the lawn, and I can't hear myself. He he now lives here, and he never mows the lawn on Sunday. So (laughs) I'll be back. Never. Okay. He has nothing to do. (laughs) So there are things um, that I learned, and you might have learned this too uh, in your practice. It sounds like many of you have done talks. you're, You're pretty seasoned in the practice. So you'll recognize these teachings. And um, I would be interested in how you um, engage whatever arises in your life, how you engage it. So when I first started practicing, the reason why I wrote about uh, added awakening through gay race, sexuality and gender was my question was when I walked in is how can I live fully and live freely uh, despite oppression? You know, how can I have a full life? Because I wasn't going I, I would feel often, even as a teenager, that, oh, my God, you know, I've been given the worst life ever. You know, I, I don't think I want to live it. And um, but then I decided I wanted to live it and I wanted to live it fully and I wanted to live it in joy. And um, and I, I, I'm sometimes surprised how joyous my life is. <laughs> and although sad and struggle and a lot of suffering, there's so much joy. And that comes from how I engage whatever arises. So one of those things is how I see things, a view, how I perceive what is going on, what comes to me. So, for instance, um, you know the story about the snake and the rope. How many people know that story? The snake and the rope. Yeah, most people do. Okay, so um, and I'm definitely going to truncate that story. But uh, this uh, person goes out and they're walk, taking a walk 
and they get very um, nervous, like, oh, my God, there's a snake in the road. You know, I'm going to I'm going to get bit or whatever. I'm afraid of snakes. And so um, they don't go further. And uh, I think it's a monk that sees this person walking in this fear. This is this story has been told many different ways. So this is way number 101. So <laughs> so anyway, the monk comes and says, I can see that you're afraid. What is it that you're afraid of? And he says, there's a snake in the road. There's a snake ahead of the road. And the um, and uh, the monk looks and he says, there's no snake. And so he says, yes, it's right there. There's a snake. And so they, you know, I guess he walks him to it or maybe he brings a snake to him. Who cares? Let's make the story real juicy. He goes against the snake <laughs> and brings it to him and turns out that uh, it's not a snake. It's a rope. It's a rope. It's not a snake. And I know many of us might have had some of these experiences in our lives. You know, what we think we see is not what it is. But that's kind of how we engage life a lot. We, we have some kind of perception, you know, of it. You know, I was just sitting in my courtyard where I have a tree with his, uh, hibiscus flowers. So it bloomed in the spring. And then I kind of like, OK, that's probably going to be it. There's these big yellow hibiscus flowers. They're beautiful. And so I was sitting out there not too long before this time here. And I noticed that, oh, you know, there are no flowers, you know, on on it right now. I wonder I'm going to have any flowers. And I said, okay, it's all right. Green leaves are pretty too. I'll just look at the green leaves. And I sat there and I sat there for a moment. And then the longer I sat, I noticed on the other side of the tree was a yellow bloom. But in my mind, the first 10, 15 minutes, there were no yellow blooms. There were none at all. So this is how we sometimes engage life with our perceptions and how we view uh, things that are going on. This is how we enter social engagement. You know, we have some idea of what we think, you know, is going on and what we've read, what we've been taught, what we think we're supposed to do. And, um, and then we take action. We start engaging um, from all these things that are in our minds, you know, um, engaging from, um, you know, uh, the, my own, for my own self, sometimes when I was younger, engaging from a great amount of righteousness. I am right and I must be right because everything about my life is wrong. So this, I must be right. And then to discover I'm not, you know, step by step, piece by piece. Or to decide I know an an experience and then someone tells me later, that's not, that's what you think you saw. (laughs) That's not what happened. That's a very hard thing to do, especially if you're dealing with oppression, you know, and and, um, you're seeing things happen and you're uh, thinking, oh, that's, that's what's happening that there's discrimination that's happening. Oh, they don't like me because I'm this, that, and the other. I'm white, I'm black, I'm brown, you know, all of these things. And so you begin to engage your life that way. They're not dealing with me because, um, you know, I'm disabled or something like that. I can't, they're not asking me to volunteer because they think I can't 
because my legs are this way. They think I can't carry something with my arms. You know, all of these things are, are what comes, you know, uh, gets involved in our um, engaging. And I found that many, 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 many of them are myths. And then many of them, there's a reality to it. But that reality shows up somewhere later on. Like, for instance, I know that if I go here, you know, I might be discriminated against. Well, maybe not, maybe so. So then I go with that idea and I'm discriminated against. I said, see, I knew it. And then I go um, uh, to another place and I have the same thing in mind. Nothing's changed, right? I go to another place and I'm not discriminated against. But I still in my mind think I'm being discriminated against. So you see how the mind gets involved and it starts to serve how we perceive our lives. It serves the consciousness in which we have developed and the consciousness we have manufactured (laughs) and all of these things that we do as human beings. It's only human. Everything we do is only human. We're human beings, but it's to recognize it. We might not be able to change it, but if we recognize it and become aware of the situations, we're able to engage whatever arises, no matter what, and to engage it from a place that doesn't always serve how we think about life. So, um, so of course, like I said, one of those things is to have a complete view, like to see the entire tree. I know you heard the story about the elephant and how many people touched the elephant thinking the elephant, oh, the elephant's really small if you touch the tail. Oh, the elephant's really big if you touch the leg. You know, so, you, you know, depending on where you're touching the elephant, what your view is. Oh, the elephant has, you know, this is very long and you're touching the trunk, you know. So, you know, these various ways in which we see life is, is affecting how we engage it. Now, we talk a lot about direct experience in life, you know, having a direct experience of the way life is arising. Well, how can we do that when we have read so many books and, you know, how many people have upper degrees? <laughs> you know, we've, we've gone to college, you know, um, all these things we've done uh, to acquire knowledge. Um, to help us control situations, to help us assimilate in society, to help us um, be composed, to be um, part of the way society moves. And so assimilation and culturation. And so, you know, it's hard to have that direct experience. So oftentimes I will share with uh, many of my students and um, three are here today, Um, that I think it's only a baby that really has direct experience in some ways, but we don't know where babies actually come from altogether. They may come with a whole lot of things, right? They, They do say that, that there's a lot of imprint on our bones. But when a baby looks at you, you know, and I, I give people this exercise every time you see a baby to st- to study the baby and look at where the baby's looking, even if the baby's looking at you, you know, take that in because that's direct experience. <laughs> they're demonstrating it to you. You know, they're, they're showing you, they, they don't know anything about what they're looking at unless you tell them that's mama, that's daddy. That's auntie. That's your sister. 
that's your brother, that's your this, that's white, that's black, that's up, that's down. That's you, that's not. <laughs> All of these things come later. But the baby, especially the, I would say, because I've taken care of a lot of babies, so I'm, I'm talking from experience. Um, um, raising babies from three months to, you know, my mother had us took care of children, she had a school. So three months to about, I would say to about one, maybe there's direct experience. Because two, everything is mine, right? At two years, <laughs> everything is mine. So there, something has happened already <laughs> by, two, by two years old. So I think it's important to recognize that the direct experience is difficult to um, to have, but it's not impossible. So um, I spend my time in, I think, sitting meditation is that practice. And I do feel like it's a shamanic practice because the longer you sit, I I experience less and less of uh, how I perceive life. So like some people can eat, uh, really lose their mind in sitting because you actually begin to lose touch with the world as you have been perceiving it. And so that's why you need some help and guidance, hopefully, along the way, you know, from sitting. And uh, uh, people have asked me all the time, that's all you guys do is just sit, zazen. They just sit, zazen. And, um, and, and your mind runs wild and nobody's guiding you. You need guided meditation. And, <laughs> and I just smile because I know that in the sitting and it, even if it runs wild in the wild for, forest, I get to be wild and I could be in the wild forest of the world and see what arises and how it arises and what I would do and how I would do in that. Sometimes I'm very afraid. And sometimes I do feel like I'm on the edge and I'm going to lose my mind. But then I realized that that edge and that loss of mind, if not uh, medical, and, and, you know, maybe one day it will be, I can, um, something else arises about how I see life, how I see my own life, how I see others in my life. And um, what I think I'm seeing and, and viewing in life changes. And I have different words for it. And I think that's why I started writing. I didn't write because I was interested in, um, you know, espousing my theories or perceptions or those kinds of things. Writing uh, has always been with me before Zen and uh, as a way of inquiry, as a way of looking and witnessing. That's the only way I feel I can witness is writing it. And then I look at the, those words and, um, and know that uh, um, they may not be real. Something's not real about what you just wrote. I'll ask myself that. What, why, did, why did that come about? And I get to play with that. And so... Um, I don't do the writing without the sitting. My writing is the zazen. Um, like people want to know my writing process. I don't have a writing process. You know, I don't really have one because I'm not an author, but I am, right? Because that's what the world perceives of somebody with a book. But then I feel like I am an author, okay, because I put my name on the book. 
And so often um, I have wanted to just call my, say anonymous on the book. So often, every time I write one, I say, oh, well, they think I'm just afraid of my words, <laughs> but really it's anonymous, you know, and my la- one of my books that just came out, The Deepest Peace, that really feels anonymous. It really feel like the words came from uh, the earth. It came from witnessing and seeing and hearing things just as they are. And so I said, aha, that's a way of direct experiences through poetry, which is what I love. And so um, a lot of poetry is in that book, The Deepest Peace. And I wrote a non-traditional haiku, meaning it doesn't have all the syllables and 17 syllables and things like that. But the haiku is a practice in just witnessing and just writing what is seen, but not only as um, just that thing, but what you see beyond it too. So I'm going to give you an example, a really short one, because, you know, they are short still. I have long ones too. Um, Here's one I, I like a lot. Um, it's in this book, The Deepest Peace, a lot of uh, long, essay, some essays and then poems. Uh, breath before the word. Complete Dharma. Breath before the word. Complete Dharma. So before I even started speaking, the Dharma already appeared without my words. And, and that was an experience I had. I was breathing and I was getting ready to do a talk. And I felt like that one breath I was done before the talk. And so that's like engaging that breath. If I hadn't engaged that breath, I would be getting ready for the talk at that time. So most times I'm getting ready for the talk. <laughs> but that was such a, a profound moment I wrote it down as breath before the word, complete Dharma. And I I would hold on to these kinds of things. Um, Grass, more than a blade. More than a blade. They always talk about the blade of grass. To me, that's a concept. The grass is everything. (laughs) You know, the blade is everything. Um. There's a few more I want to share. Um, So first first moment of mourning, nothing in the way. First moment of mourning, nothing in the way. So how long does that last? The first moment of mourning, Nothing in the way. And you wake up and go, oh, no, I have to return that email before you even (laughs) turned over, before your eyes even opened, you know. I wanted to share this other one. Um, But these are just examples of, I think, ways in which... um, you can see life without engaging the mind. So the haiku is a practice of that, you know, of just witnessing life. And um, I've always loved poetry. 
And um, before I entered Zen, actually, the poetry was a, a gateway for me. There was a lot of poetry there, a lot of ancient poetry. And um, I was I was like, OK, I'm in the right place because um, they weren't really reading any poetry at church that I went to. We sung a lot, <laughs> which I love, but we didn't have poetry. I was looking for this one that I thought I, I might have I put the tag in, but Oh, well, it's not in the right place. So maybe I'll find it before we end. But anyway, um, so that direct experience. So you're having a complete view, hopefully, and in relationship to your perception so that when you're engaging whatever arises, you're engaging, not your thinking, but engaging what is arising. And you're engaging it from a direct experience, like a newborn baby. You know, the baby might hear me talking, but maybe they don't hear words, right? They just hear some noise, something, you know. So the other thing, so is, you know, both of the the view and the perception and um, the direct experience We often feel it's all about us. And I've been talking about it like it's all about you, (laughs) but it's not. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) It's not all about you. And so uh, when we're engaging whatever arises, we're also engaging the interrelationship of everything and everyone. And so that complicates things a little bit more. So if you engage in a movement, you engage in your sangha, you engage in your relationships, you engage with your children, partners, all of these kinds of things. And you come with your thinking about everything and what you think you know. And then you try to, okay, I'm going to witness instead. I'm going to witness everything and I'll be very clear what's happening here. And then you realize, oh, no, that's not exactly what's happening because someone steps in or something steps in and it changes the conditions. It changes all the conditions. And then you're you're, you might be a little bit lost, like, okay, I didn't know that person would show up. I didn't know that. uh, Oh, this is going to be important to how I engage you know, a situation, um, you know, I, I have so many books and I've dealt with so many different editors. And so each place I go to, I think about, I don't know how many books I have now, but every time I go to an editor, you know, I think it's going to be like the, the editor before. <laughs> and then they never are. They're never the editor. So I think I know I'm going to know how to edit and work with this person. And then they turn out to be somebody completely different and they work completely different. And I'm trying to overlay on them some of what the other editor did because I just learned their way. So each editor, I have to learn their way of editing. And that that's a lot of work, you know, in terms of, you know, how they move, when they move <laughs> and um, what they say, what they, you know, then you end up editing the editor because then they're like making mistakes too. So, <laughs> cause they're human beings. So I think, you know, I think today I am really um, asking us to uh, engage, to see, to see, which is the Buddhist uh, teachings, really. That's what 
my teacher always said, Zen K. Blanchard, man, I always said, all the Buddha ever wanted was for us to see. So we're not so much in a sitting practice, we're also in a seeing practice. So what we see, instead of quickly deciding what it is or what we think it is, is to uh, digest that scene, you know, to, which is, I think as a writer, that's what I'm doing. I'm digesting what I've seen and what I've experienced and what I'm hearing because I'm deciding it might not necessarily be true. And I'm amazed. And when I find out what is, feels like truth, that's what I want to write about, but for myself. So just so you know, all the books I've written are for me. <laughs> and they go out to other people. I, they're not. They're not for you unless you want them. <laughs> unless you, and then you get them, and maybe it's for you too. But they're for me, and they're for me. I'm. I'm. I'm working it out, and I'm inviting people into the exploration. Every book is an exploration. I'm not Buddha. I don't pretend to be Buddha. I don't even espouse all of Buddha's teachings because I don't think that that was what was meant. I think the teachings were put out for us to live and then decide from our own wisdom, our own seeing how to live life. So a lot of people spend time trying to accomplish Buddha's teachings. You know, I want to be whatever, calm, loving, kindness, peaceful, harmonic. I want to be all of these things. And let's see, I think I can pretend to at least look like that if not accomplish them. But I, that's not the point. That wasn't the point. The point was to set out in this nothingness, this unknowing, this wandering, and then and then see what gets illuminated. I love um, Tigan's book. One of my favorite books is Cultivating um, the, uh, the Illumination Empty Field. I don't know if I know if I have that title right, Cultivating the Empty Field. I love that book. I bought it many, many years ago. And it just, every time I read it, it, it brings this openness I'm talking about here. This experience of discovering even what you think you, you know. There are no hibiscus flowers this morning. And then to discover that's the joy. That's so joyous to know that, you know, I will never know everything and I don't know nothing. You know, that, that's joyous. That means there's a lot of life to live, so much life to live to the very last moment. I always thought, you know, I don't know, when I was 30, we'd get it. I'd know it all by 40 and then uh, and then live it through 50. <laughs> and, you know, of course, all of us who know are, you know, over there past that 50 note mark <laughs> or 60 mark, 70 mark. No, that, uh, oh, it's pretty much the same as when I was 10 years old, <laughs> that there's just life unfolding and engaging what arises. So just want to leave you with the three things, and I want to have a discussion with you. I think we still have time for um, Q&A. Yes, okay. Uh, so having a complete view of perception. So um, see if the rope, if the uh, rope is a snake. <laughs> and even when you're entering your social justice work, entering with what you think, not what you experience, and um, trying to, to not always let their mind interfere with what you're doing, you know, but you know, allow uh, something new to come in and join that. You know, it's very scary. It was very scary for me as a person who was very much an activist, a Pan-Africanist to allow 
something more than that to be true, to allow Zen in as a Pan-Africanist is a big leap. <laughs> you know, many of you may have some of those kinds of uh, things in your own experience. So then having a direct experience and finding a practice of witnessing, and we have one in Zazen, and we're sitting in Zazen, and we're allowing things to unfold until there's nothing, you know, but the breath of the pain of sitting, the waiting for the bell to ring. When's the bell, whatever happens, suddenly your movie gets interrupted. So find out what interrupts your movie when you're sitting Zazen, and when you wake up, uh, what interrupts that uh, moment of that first moment of waking, what, what comes in and noticing what comes in. If it's the email every morning, I think you know what to do. So I'm not going to say, but, <laughs> you know, you begin to recognize your life. Maybe it's okay for you to have email as your first thought. And then understanding the interrelationship of people so that, um, that's one of the ways of actually um, accessing direct experience and also a way of uh, digesting what's being seen, you know, that by being in relationship with other people and other things. So um, I'm going to stop there and uh, open the circle and um, I used to see Zoom as squares, but I start calling it circles. So opening the circle for any questions I, uh, of anything you'd like to ask me. If you're a reader of my books, yeah, fine. Anything you'd like to ask. Thank you so much, Sanju. Uh, people can raise their hands or uh, go to the participants at the bottom and and raise your hands there. Ruben, would you help me call on, on people? Uh, so uh, any comments, responses? Uh, Paul, Disco, please start. Um, very glad to make your acquaintance. I have heard of you, but not had direct contact with you ever before. I've heard of you um, too. And uh, seeing your I, work. I, 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 I vow to your work. <laughs> I, I was the one that introduced Blanche to Buddhism back in the late '60s. I bet it was you, <laughs> and because um, I was I was their yard boy at 14, and at 24 I was a Buddhist student, and Blanche was going through some difficulties in her life, and I suggested that Sazen might be something of interest to her, and it, apparently it was. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Thank goodness. Anyway, I I spent a good deal of time in Japan, and and and. The Japanese and, and Asian Buddhism is so much more physical and more body oriented, and then coming back to the United States is so more intellectual and head oriented. And your way seems to cut between the two quite nicely. I'm, I'm very pleased to to, to hear hear your, 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 your way you express Buddhism as a, in a as a very personal as a very personal uh, observation. But the, the personal never shows up in Japan and in, and in. And but in in America it becomes a, a more too much so much ideas. But anyway, I find your way quite wonderful. I I, I deeply I bow to your to your teaching. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, uh, nice to meet you, Paul. I've heard your name so many times, and actually, I think um, my friend Zamboala, who's here, on we ran into a place somewhere in Oakland, and, 
And they say, oh, this is where Paul Driscoll, we're, we're so excited. <laughs> you know, something, I don't know where it was. It was someplace we're looking for some wood or something. I don't know what we were looking for. But anyway, um, I see Zen. The reason, like people ask me, how can you practice at Zen? You know, there's nobody that looks like you, acts like you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, really, I sat with that. And um, for me, I, if that's why I wrote the book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, is to, and I'm hoping that both, you know, Japan and, you know, America or other places look to see this practice as a shamanic and ritual oriented and submit a ceremony, that everything is ceremonial. And everything is ritual in which you must engage the body. And so what arises in um, other things that arises in Zen practice um, can be engaged in um, just offering incense or flowers. And so I always say to, to me, it's profound to be someone who has experienced so much suffering by who I am to offer or how I'm embodied and look to others and how they think or perceive of me to be able to just walk up and just offer incense to put that down in the midst of all of that. It was a profound act of transformation for me over and over again and still is. It's a profound act. And someone asked, well, what about all those robes you wear? You know, all that stuff. And I said, I love my robes. They said, you do. And I said, yeah, I do. And it's, and it's not because they're, you know, they're troublesome. I said, but what I love about them is that it's the nakedness, you know, that this is how we're naked. We're naked of the world's, you know, way of being. And I get to be um, not in, you know, having on a particular kind of thing, you know, even though I do. But it's it's um, we can't actually be naked, you know. Uh, so this is the way, you know, of, for me of not having um, I write about it in this book, too. I wrote I write about it because the students driving me to the, to the Zendo and I'm talking about um, later coming out of the Zendo with these robes still on and, and really loving looking different than everyone who's going to work in their suits and high heels, which I wore my high heels and my suits and you know, my perms and I had all of it. I, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm totally impacted by the world. And, and so it's not like I'm not, but I do, um, and, and, you know, have joy in this body practice and this, this, um, this ceremony, um, in which Zazen is to open you up to the ceremony. So I'm really praying that people read that book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, because it might be kind of my, my last book around Zen that I would like to, to bring to to uh, uh, the world, and I include my experiences in there. And, and I'm talking about having, you know, outer body experience, but you can, you know, and all these things. But it was in Buddhism in which I began to see beyond this physical plane. It was in Buddhism. It was from sitting. It was from chanting. And I'm really clear about it because I have been doing it intensely for almost a decade uh, when an oracle came through me in a dream. So I didn't make any of that happen. It was an experience. And so I know that's what I knew. I was like, whoa, the the practice of meditation and the way it's presented, I'm, I'm really disappointed about it a lot because when I talk to people who are in the larger masses, ask me about how to be calm, you know, 
and and, and my students already know. I su- I suggest chamomile tea, and uh, <laughs> and valerian root. But if they want to practice, if they want a, a commitment to transforming their lives, so that what what arises in their life doesn't you know make them crazy or lose consciousness or breath that they that they need to walk, be committed to something and some kind of path but in the meantime uh, valerian root and and chamomile tea works you don't have to take on <laughs> you don't have to take on zazen <laughs> so yeah i would love to talk with you a lot a lot more paul so one day yeah okay all right um dylan has his hand up Go okay ahead. dylan Thank you for your talk. Uh, it's a great joy to, to meet you and, and be here for this. Um, I'm wondering if you can just talk about what ritual is, because uh, that's that's a big word for me, and I and I'm I'm having trouble navigating what is or isn't a ritual. Okay, very good, very good. So, what do you think it is? Can I ask you that? Um. Well. Uh, Anything done with intention, uh, with a spiritual uh, consciousness of some kind, I guess? Yes, yes, I, I agree with you on that. And a lot of people think uh, in, the, in the larger maybe masses will think of ritual as a routine or a habit. And um, I had a student, you know, you get all kinds of students. And I've been teaching for a long, long time. I was teaching before. I entered Zen. I, I taught for 15 years in Nishran. And so it's just been a long time. And so one person asked me that their ritual was uh, eating Cheetos, really, literally. And I asked them, did that, did that provide any kind of transformation or any new way of seeing the world and themselves and the lot, you know, and in uh, the lives that are around him? How does that affect, you know, uh, the way he lives. And of course, there was no answer. But I think that ritual, um, you know, ceremony contains the rituals. So, um, you know, when you go to into Zen, the first thing there, you know, ring the bells, here's Yimokugyo, you know, so you, they're trying to get you on all of the instruments. And it's not, not necessarily uh, just to make things happen, you know, but to, um, to, create, be able to create the ceremonies that are needed in order for you to have a direct experience in the moment from your zazen. So when we get up from um, zazen, you know, we get up out of our seats and zazen is is our central ri- uh, ritual for zen to me. That is, that is the ritual, is zazen. And so from zazen, we move into everything else, walking, kihin, um, Oreo, whatever happens. So what happens for some people is like, whoo, Zazen's over or whoo, Kihen or whatever. You know, so the connection sometimes is all fragmented. So we don't necessarily experience everything as a ceremony. So even when you go to practice discussion, so a lot of people sign up for practice discussion to get this long list because they want to get out of Zazen. They don't want to do the rituals or whatever. And they come and they come having dropped the ritual of Zazen. They're, they're not there anymore. They're in some other place, just from the seat to the, the, the uh, coming to do get practice discussion. 
So ritual, and I only am speaking of it in terms of, uh, of Zen. I've, I've done rituals and other um, practices and traditions. And um, I can say that they are, they all are similar in a sense that they create some kind of consciousness, like you said, intention, and uh, so that you can um, open and open and open uh, the longer you do it. So that's why sashins are very similar to me to uh, Sundance, Native American Sundance, uh, in which they can last, ours lasted for eight days. And, um, and you're drumming and you're singing and people are dancing and you're praying and you're, you're just bringing up a particular energy in which all those involved in the ceremony can open up to something different and new, you know, have a complete view of, of what they thought, you know, they were thinking and about themselves, even other people, you know, you, you see other people, you know, differently when they're, um, you know, um, seated in Zazen or when they're involved in, say, the Suzuki Roshi, you know, memorial or any um, type of uh, ceremony that is provided to us. I'm grateful for them. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, why did you go to Spirit Rock? And I did go to Spirit Rock. And um, I, they said, well, what happened when you got there? I said, they weren't chanting. And <laughs> And I, I, I need that chant, and especially the ones that are not in English, because I understand the rhythm, because I'm a drummer, I understand the rhythm changes and transforms something in me. And um, so that I'm not using my thinking, I'm not going in to say, I'm going to think my way through Zen. But if I'm, if I'm chanting Emme uh, Juku Kananyo, I'm going to rhythm my way into it. All right. It's not that, you know, um, when your mind is busy, you know, when my mind is busy, show Samuel Kitty Jodarani is very good to chant. <laughs> or Dahi Shindarani just breaks it right on up into, and puts you in a whole another place. Those chants are ancient. They are medicine. Nobody created them today. Just so they sound good. And just so you can just um, perform. Zen, although a lot of people call Zen a performance religion, a <laughs> practice, because there is performance, but not performance in the sense of uh, theater. It can look like that and sometimes act like that, you know, but uh, it's the practice is in, in those uh, rituals and, and ceremonies. I, what, I wrote, what I wrote in all my books came from those rituals and ceremonies. Every single book I've written, every single book including the oracle, which was in Nishran, that all came from the Dharma. Those are Dharma books in that way. You know, I, my Dharma books aren't reiterating uh, the Dharma's teachings in its, you know, specificity, you know, like, you know, I don't, I don't do the Four Noble Truths. I, I do what the Four Noble Truths did for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't write about them, you know, so... Okay, thank you for that, Dylan. You, I think you're going to uh, enjoy maybe that book, The Shamanic Bones and Zen, it comes out February 8th, so it's a long time from now where you can get it. Yeah. So thank you. Um, other, we have time for other comments, responses, questions. Please feel free. 
I see your hand. Oh, cool. Hello. Hi, cool. Um, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I, I wanted to ask, um, I was sort of moved by the quality of watching a three-month to one-year-old um, and what it is to perceive or, or have direct perception of the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a quality of learning from them. How do we help a child as they grow not take on the burdens that so many of them um, take on that would make them not want to live out the life that they're placed in? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we can't prevent their lives. You know, we can snuff out their life, okay? <laughs> but they're going to live their life. And, and um, that's what we're doing with our practice. We're mirroring to them living you know and so a lot of us mirror whatever is happening with them that's what we've mirrored to them all children all of them every single one don't care who they are where they're from you know how poor how rich you know they're listening to rap in beverly hills and in the slums of india that's what's mirrored to children one of the things so I think that we don't have to make them religious or, you know, focus them on a religion, which a lot of people might do, like I, my parents did, put me in church. But, I, but more importantly than the church was witnessing my, my mother and father and how they lived their life, you know, and, and looking at the church members and seeing the incongruencies in them. I was really floored when I found out some of the things they did. I was like, mom, (laughs) I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't follow these people, you know? And she was like, you're not following the people. I thought, oh, she said, if you allow people to take away your practice, your God, you will not have a life if people take away those things from you by how they are acting. Cause I was ready to quit. I was like, okay, never mind. So like by the time I got to Zen, it, it almost didn't matter what people were doing. Almost the, the gross racism and homophobia and all of that didn't matter because by then I understood people. My mother already told me I was 10 or 11 years old. <laughs> I already knew people do all kinds of things. And I already experienced it, you know, going to uh, desegregated schools starting at eight. So I already um, knew that there was no controlling people, you know, and um, other people. And that it with um, our children, um, our youth is helping them understand that some of the things in our, in our world that feel hard and difficult and that those things are, um, are, are gateways, if they would allow them to be gateways and not hammers, not some or daggers trying to kill them, that those things are gateways. And then we teach them how to walk through those gateways of trouble rather than give them a, a Nintendo or whatever. I don't know. They probably have other kinds of things by now. I don't know. Xbox, I don't know give them whatever they, you know, those things, those, another game, you know. So I think that um, we ourselves have to know how to walk through uh, the disruption 
and the undoings that we have lived through. And they have been global, right? And major and in our face. And, and those kids are watching how we're, what we're doing. And they're not happy <laughs> with us as older people sometimes. They're expecting, they need that eldership. They need that uh, demonstration. They need to see people living uh, fully and despite the chaos. That means you're walking through it. You know, I'm, I've had people say to me, oh, I see you're doing something. There's something you're doing, you know, and I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm living through um, uh, my life, uh, discovering and witnessing and having the, the direct experience of a newborn. And that's what I'm doing. And that's what they see. And so um, to them, it seems calm, but I'm not calm, you know. I'm just, I'm seeing, I'm practicing seeing, <laughs> you know, I'm seeing you right now and, and, and practicing that and, and noticing my seeing and noticing the brain, my mind interfering with what I'm seeing. It's all happening right now in my consciousness. So it's, it's demonstrating what we present as ourselves, not to, we might not see all the children, but just the children in our lives. My, the children in my life, you know, there's a lot of children in my life and they're watching me. They're, some of them are grown and some of them are little, you know, but they're watching me. Thank you. Other uh... Responses, questions, comments, please, please feel free. David Ray, and then Deborah. Thank you so much for this talk. And I'm really looking forward to the book as someone for whom shamanic practice and, and ritual has been important at various times in my life. And as you were talking, it was just kind of checking, going, yeah, I, yeah, I love that. I love music. I love poetry. That's one of the things that attracts me to Zen. And um, maybe maybe you'd say something more about poetry as as a, a, a gateway or something that opens up to direct experience because I think it does that too, and it's it's kind of mysterious as to how it does that because it seems like language is language is so often you know, in the way of direct experience. But but so what is it about poetry? You think is it that it's musical, that it's rhythmic, that it's ritual, or something else? Yeah. Thank you. Question. Um, and I'm going to do a plug right now. But I am doing a workshop with uh, Ross Gay, who's a poet who wrote the book of the lights, which was a bestseller. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful book. So, so Zen. And he's not Zen practitioner. I'm doing that with him at the San Francisco Zen Center in um, September. And we're going to be addressing this questions you're talking about, but um Poetry, and I'm talking about poetry that, to me, in order for it to to be transformative or to have the Dharma in it, and just to make a note, too, that the majority of uh, Zen masters and ancient Zen masters like Basho, Basui, Ikyu, and all of them, and Hashan, and all of them, they they would, all this talking I'm doing just would not happen. It would all be about the poetry, which is what I love. So I, I really would love to get up and say, okay, 
that was the Dharma talk. <laughs> you know, I really would love to just do that. But I think that poetry, I think you'll really enjoy the deepest piece if you haven't gotten that book, because I talk about it also in the introduction in the way that um, if you're just using the most simplest words without adjectives, and um, if you write, if you're a poet, try writing like that. No adjectives and, and not the word I, no I, 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 I. And I did, I wrote this book that way. Of course, I had to put some eyes back in because the editors were going crazy. But um, what you're doing is pulling yourself out of being the perceiver, the only perceiver of the mountain. So I don't say purple mountains, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I just say mountains. And from this, the mountains and maybe where I place the sun or the season in which I place them in places you in the poetry. So I, ha- I do have a, a podcast <laughs> that I barely can do. It's called um, All Life is Poetry. And I do, I'm starting to talk about poetry because uh, a lot of people ask the question you're asking. And I think it's really important in Zen since Zen has that, uh, <clears throat> I would say a shamanic bone of poetry that um, we can enter the Dharma in that way without a lot of uh, words and language. We have to use words. We're using, I'm using English, but EQ use whatever EQ spoke, right? So I don't, I don't have uh, their language, but uh, when I wrote this book and I still, this is my favorite book. I have to tell you, I've written a lot. This one's my favorite because I get to read it and I get to experience peace when I read it because I wanted the book to be an experience of peace. And I would tell people, you're not going to like it, you know, because, you know, it's um, not about the Dharma, not about race, not about this, not about that. I said, you're going to go in there and you're not, you're going to come out with nothing. (laughs) You're not going to have something you can go tell somebody about. And I did that on purpose because I would hear people espousing my teachings from other books and I didn't like that. So like they think they knew something about what I wrote. And it's like, that's not what I wrote. Like someone actually said, I'm to take refuge in my identity. I said, Oh my God, no, you know, (laughs) that's what you got from the book. So that was kind of scary to me. So I think when you can pull yourself back in, in the poetry, and I think every, every there's, different ways poetry. It doesn't have to be flowery, rhythmic. It doesn't even have to be a structure at all. Because I, uh, you know, I do have um, prose in here and the prose to me are as poetic as the poem. So I don't, I don't think it has to be a particular way, but I think uh, leaving out the adjectives and leaving out the I changes how the poem feels. And I went back to some of my old poems and did that with them in it. And they're just beautiful to me, not because I'm not, it's not, I'm not in it. You know, it created some expansion. And so I think that um, if it creates expansion, then it creates that field, field of direct experience that we're asking about, that field of, of illumination. You know, even though you have, you're hearing the words, there's some illumination happening. So when, even when I read the book, there's an illumination happening. And I just did a retreat where people read parts of the book. And that was amazing to listen to parts of the book, parts of the words, because I got even more expanded listening to them. 
And there are my own words. And so, you know, in a sense, my own words, like I said, this one definitely should have been by anonymous, but (laughs) because it was just the earth speaking, you know, and taking that time. I I had the time to do that for a year or so to just be and to be by the mountains and and in the desert and those kinds of things. So, um, so I am talking about all poems can transform. They don't, I even have a piece talk about shouting because a lot of people think, oh, there's shouting poems and, the, you know, rapping and all that. That's not poetry. And, uh, it, and there is, there, it is poetry in there. And, um, and even in the, in the protests that happen, you know, when, when we're, you know, faced with, uh, you know, killings and things like that in our society, when I hear that chanting, chanting going on, it's some profound mantras and, sh- and profound uh, poetry being said during all that anger and hatred. It's just amazing to hear it. And um, even the ones I might want to avoid, but it's just, uh, I can hear it everywhere. Um, I think we speak it all the time. We're just not knowing it as poetry, you know? Oh. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you never get anything concrete from a poet. So. Deborah. Thank you so much for your talk. You're it's welcome. been just wonderful. Uh, my question is going in a different direction, and it, it, I hope it's not off track. I don't know much about you, but um, you were you first during the beginning of the talk. You talked about how your experience of feeling wounded by racial oppression and being othered Mm -hmm. really affected you. And I wanted to ask you two questions. One was, how did you get into Zen? But more importantly, I wanted to ask you, um, I personally did try to teach mindfulness and meditation in a jail for eight years. It ended um, due to COVID. But during that time, I was struck by the material that I was using was so white in many ways. And I'm not putting an undue burden on you but do you ever get called to reach populations that are so in need of these teachings and of this personal experience you bring is so powerful? Um, majority of my appearances are not with Zen communities. Not. This is rare. <laughs> um, so um, all the time, my entire life is that and has been that. I didn't go into Zen. Zen got into me. I didn't even know what I was doing, where I was like, what am I doing here? Walking Kihin, you know, it it just came into me. And because that's, I had the right conditions for that at that time. Like I said, I had a a practice before Zen. Um, My wounds still exist. And I, I'm not trying to get rid of them necessarily. Um, and the wounds of those you speak with will always be there. To do some kind of mind trick with it is dangerous, very dangerous. You know, we have to go through the gateways of our suffering. It's that fire that, you know, so it could be destructive fire or illuminating fires, what I always talk, teach. Um, by now, my students could probably teach these talks because <laughs> I've said it so a lot to uh, teach people how to walk through fire. We're talking about children, how to walk through fire, how to walk in darkness and in, in, in the darkness, uh, the illumination, you know? And so I am very happy that I have had all 
the suffering I've had, not that I'm happy to have suffered, but I'm happy to have learned to not suffer the suffering any longer. And so I, if you are still yourself suffering the suffering, you can't teach anyone anything. If you yourself don't know how to walk through anything, I don't care how long you've practiced, 40 years. I know teachers have practiced 40, 50 years and cannot walk through the fire, cannot deal with other people who are on fire, <laughs> cannot. So until that comes to you, and it might not be in this lifetime, you might not be the one. It'll be the person in 3,500, 3,000, year 3,000, not you necessarily, because you've spent, or me, myself, so I've spent 30 years, it might not be me. So I think it's important, and it's all of the people, all of the Buddhist majority, except for in Nishran, they were of color. My teacher is, was white. And here I am. So, I mean, if we want to make those superficial markings, I think it, it's great to have a teacher that reflects you. I think it's important that looks like you and has experienced some of the things you have experienced. Um, even though uh, Zenke was white, uh, she was also Jewish. And I was uh, pretty much raised with Jewish children in a desegregated school. And um, we also connected that she was from the South. And so was my family. So, you know, there were different gateways in which we became uh, open to each other. Did we deal with racism? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You know, there was nothing perfect about um, Zen K. Blanche Hartman. There's nothing perfect about Thich Nhat Hanh either. I've been, you know, we think these teachers are like perfect because the way they present. You know, I've been to Thich Nhat Hanh's community. And there's a great amount of uh, xenophobia and racism. As, as colored as it is. So we have, that's again, that's that perception. And you know, if you enter in helping people with the perception of, oh, they need this, they need that because this and because of that, you're going to m- miss seeing something that you need to see. I got misdiagnosed for something I'm suffering with now because I wasn't white. They didn't check my, my they didn't check me because it's something white people have. They checked me when I was 50 something, but I had it since I was a kid. And this one person just decided to check me. (laughs) And I don't know what, and she was just seeing, not seeing just with her eyes. She was seeing like, there's something here and it's not in front of me. And she blew my mind because I was like, what? You know, she said, are you biracial? No one's ever asked me whether I'm biracial. (laughs) You know, I don't look biracial. I am inside. I'm biracial, according to the gene mark. And that that makes sense. Slavery (laughs) and those kinds of things that happened in the past. So are you seeing me? Are you seeing what relatives are you seeing when you're looking at me? You know, you don't know. I don't know. I know a little more. I did a DNA test, but, you know, but I know more. So I think it's important to, um, and not to, to, to call on your own wisdom and your own seeing, rather than thinking that someone who looks a particular way has more 
of seeing it and understanding. They may because of the experience and they may not. There are some people that look just like me, cannot explain oppression or racism to you. You know, so it's not a guarantee. They may not be the facilitator that you want. (laughs) You know, I've had to pull out a student from a situation where they made her a facilitator and that was not who she was. She's in the place of facilitating herself. And that is our work. We're, we're here to do the Dharma, not to correct the oppression of America. We're just, we're coming just like you, unless that's what you came for. I don't know. I doubt, I don't know. I haven't heard it coming from others that way, but we're here for the Dharma. And what I'm here for the Dharma and I teach the Dharma. Even though people have asked me to lead marches and all that kinds of crazy things I don't do. But that's how they, they don't care. They don't see me as a Zen teacher. Most people don't. Yeah. Even in Zen centers, I'm not seen as a teacher. Yeah. And that, do I stop teaching? 